the real exciting part that's going to happen during the recession, right? If you get good at picking up companies that are distressed now and there's a recession, it's going to be Black Friday for us. We're on a mission. We're going to find and uncover the smartest, most successful entrepreneurs on the planet. Explore their highs, their lows, and how they ultimately mastered the game. I'm Martin Cook, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Smarter Destiny podcast. I'm grateful for you and your time. Now let's level up together. Ladies and gentlemen, a warm welcome to the Smart Destiny podcast where I have my close friend, Metab Bogle. He is an absolute genius. He's built communities around passions um, that he loves, turned those into huge companies with massive pre-orders. That's selling stuff before that stuff exists, folks. Very, very clever. Clever is kind of a recurring theme um, with this guy. He's the sort of guy that reads every single line in the terms and conditions and actually understands them. He's um, been advisors to many, many companies, including including my own, and right now he is one of the key players at Carter Ventures, whereby they buy e-commerce stores and flip them for a lot more money by doing really, really, really smart stuff. And we're going to get into that in today's interview. So without further ado, Metab, how are you? Excellent. Now that I'm talking with you, Martin, Fantastic. it's always a better day. It is always a better day. And, what, and where are you and what time is it where you are? Uh, I'm in Vancouver right now, and it is 11.25. 11.25 p.m. P.m., yeah. P.m. Wicked. So in these interviews, and I'm sure you've listened to every single one that I've done in the past, so Absolutely. you know this, um, what we typically do is we start at a logical point in your past where, you know, there was maybe a little bit of a struggle, there's maybe a little bit of transition, where you began to cut your teeth as a, an entrepreneur. Is there a time in your in your um, history um, for you uh, where it would be a logical starting point? And if there is, where are you? Yeah, absolutely. So I think for me it would be when I was a student at university. Um, I didn't really enjoy it much, naturally. Um, and I was buying and selling guitars for fun, um, and that was going fairly well. So my business partner and I at the time, or he ended up becoming my business partner, um, we started an online community for guitarists that were kind of into metal, progressive metal, and high-end guitars at once. Um, so we, we kind of started a community on Facebook around then. Right around then, organic reach was really, really good. As I'm sure you know, the golden days of Facebook organic reach. Great oh, yeah. time. Um, and that, that took off right away. It did really well. Um, we started working with retailers to do custom runs of guitars where we'd take a commission. And at that point, yes, it was you know, decent money. So I decided, hey, you know, why bother with school? Nice. And so what did you, um, what were you doing at school uh, before you dropped? Uh, did you drop out? Yeah, 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 yeah. So what were you it doing was, before um, then? It was psychology. And why did you get into psychology? Oh, it was just something to do. The, the requirements were lower than business, so. <laughs> and did you, um, did you, what was the reason um, for, like, like for you, what was the reason for dropping out? And, and second part of that question, when you got into psychology, did you have something in mind? Like, were you thinking you were, you had a path ahead of you or were you just kind of taking each day? Um, I, I figured I'd get into something related to their finance or entrepreneurship. Um, I didn't really have a solid plan, but I think what led me to drop out was probably just that what I was doing was already going very, very well, and we, we hadn't really even started. Um, and it was just really enjoyable work. Like, I, I grew up really wanting to play all these really high-end guitars, and this way I could enjoy them, play them, and meet a lot of my favorite guitarists. 
doing it. So it was, I literally couldn't have thought of anything better to do at the time. So. Wow. And so what was the name of this, um, this guitar community? Yeah, so it started off as guitar porn, where we just post a lot on Facebook of uh, just beautiful guitars and then push users from there into our organic community. We later renamed it Wired Guitarist, um, and then we created a retail store around that where we did things like we, we did those custom runs, and then we had, um, we had our own guitar string subscription service as well, things like that. And then kind of concurrently, I was VPing a company called Bloomalon, which you know about too, um, and it's a product company that our, our mutual good friend Ben started. Um, just kind of doing both of those, both of those at once, and then um, launched Horizon Devices, which is a guitar pedal company that did really well, kind of right off the bat. Um, was a good friend of mine. Wow. Okay. So, so at this point, you've got you've got several plates spinning. Um, so you're doing yeah. you're doing um, guitar porn, which transitioned into um, wired guitarist. Yeah. I think we can probably guess why um, when you're getting into the corporate space um, and at the same time you're VP of Blumarn and Blumarn's, Blumarn's an impressive company right maybe maybe um, what maybe talk about your role a little bit there yeah so uh, my good friend Ben had launched it in the summer of 2016 maybe 2017 I can't remember um, he hit six-figure pre-orders really fast um, they hit seven-figure sales really really fast I think they're doing seven-figure sales on a run rate basis right away um, and I just kind of, I, I had some extra time because the stuff at Wired Guitarist wasn't eating up a lot of time, frankly. Um, at the same time, I was waiting on the product development to finish for Horizon Devices. So I told him, hey, I'll help you out for four to six months. I'll kind of jump on. Um, just handling a lot of the marketing side. I'm actually not a very good digital marketer, but for some reason, I always end up being uh, stuck with the digital marketing side of things with all of our businesses <laughs> or just kind of end up there. Um, but yeah. I just primarily focused there, working with a lot of influencers, et cetera. So it was so, really fun. And so if, um, if, if you, I mean, I, I've seen your digital marketing. I've, I know your digital marketing knowledge. So you're definitely doing yourself a disservice there because I know you crush it that. But what would you say your strength is then if it's not digital marketing? Um, I'd say I'm probably best kind of assembling deals or finding value um, just based around that and just really making something work for all parties. Um, I'm okay at the digital side, but I'm not like you. I'm not going to run, you know, seven figure ad spend in my sleep. So. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, a, it's an interesting sleep when you're doing that. That's for sure. Okay. So, <laughs> and so, <laughs> so horizon devices was also in the guitar space, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, how big did, um, let's go back to wired guitars. How big did that community? Oh, well, first of all, is it still running? Yeah, so the community is actually still up. Um, what happened is basically we became an online retailer. Sales were really good. You know, we we're doing seven-figure sales on a run rate basis. Um, and then we launched Horizon Devices, which just did ridiculously well. Our margins really healthy at that company. It's still up and running, by the way. Um, you know, that the margin was ridiculously healthy there versus being a retailer. So it's a, that's kind of something I learned early on, especially with Bloomon, where margin was ridiculous. Um, Margin is crucial. If you have good margin, you know, you can afford to drive CPA way up. It makes such a big difference, especially now on Facebook where you see, you know, your cost per click's gone up so high over what it used to be just a few years ago, especially as digital becomes more and more crowded. Um, sorry, that was a really confident answer. But yeah, uh, yeah, Horizon sells guitar pedals. 
<laughs> I mean, I you know, I'm constantly on the lookout for threads, and I think we've definitely yeah. got to pull at that thread. So, so mm-hmm. um, particularly as you're the guy that makes the you know who who makes the fantastic deals, the win-win deals, and is looking for opportunities in e- in the e-commerce space, and you're you're very very good at um, the proper bird's eye view of a business, you know, rather than getting drilled into say facebook ads which is one tiny right. area of a successful dmvb what um you said healthy ma- margins are essential what's a healthy margin in your opinion um well the four we're seeing kind of across the portfolio as far as facebook advertising costs and kind of maximum cpa you can really afford right now is um it's about twenty dollars so we need to we need we need to ensure that we can afford to spend at least twenty dollars to acquire a customer um and that's if we want to be profitable on the first on their first purchase um, which in a lot of cases, these companies kind of have to be. We can't really afford to you know, go out and burn $5 million for six months to figure out what our LTV is and then figure out how much we can really afford to spend. Um, so really, we're just looking to make sure we can afford to spend that $20 up front without losing money. Um, and we're generally happy there. Um, we've got into a few deals where, where the margin isn't quite there. We've made something work really well. Um, and that tends to come out of just juicing LTV which no. I'm sure you've found as well. Yeah, and with um, recurring and um, repeat re- repeat purchases and so on. Certainly, I agree with that. And so do you, as interesting to me, you're talking about margin in terms of um, a dollar amount. Um, do you do you have a sweet spot in terms of price point as well? Or are you just looking for that, 20, that $20 buffer between cost and sale price? Yeah, on the AOV side... Um, I guess I should have answered too. On margin, it's generally like roughly 50%. Um, obviously, the more, the better. But on the LTV side, I'm sorry, not LTV, AOV side to average order value, like you're saying, um, it, it really varies. We want at least 50 to $60, or at least be a clear path to that, pre- to that point. Um, you know, if, if a company isn't really implementing many upsells, carts look thin at checkout, et cetera, they're not really doing anything right and they still have a chunky AOV, that's really good news for us because we can kind of drop in, um, help them build that out, and then afford to spend more on marketing. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And so, all right, so we, um, we're jumping about, but we always come back to, to, the, to the core um, theme, folks, so don't lose us in, in this, this web of discussion. Uh, so in terms of um, Wired Guitarist, how big did that community um, get? Yeah, so that got to six figures worth of users, um, low side, definitely high side. And it, it was a really good user base because there were all people who bought high-end guitars actively. Um, my business partner and I actually built out the community, not only through Facebook, but we we're also both really active on a bunch of various internet forums. Um, and we post threads there and just kind of leech off their user base and push them into ours. Um, and a lot of the guys that joined were people that we myself and my business partner had actually traded guitars where they bought and sold with. Um, so they were like us. They were hardcore, um, what we call gear whores, where they just love buying and selling guitars. They, they love nothing more. Um, some guys were out to make a buck. Some weren't. They just love trying new guitars. Um, and my business partner and I were both very much so the same way, where we just loved trying guitars. It was just really funny because he'd go through all this. I remember one time I messaged a guy on a message board that was, there's a post from like six years ago. He hadn't logged in for like five years. And uh, I managed to source the guitar from him that was super rare. And that was just funny stuff like that. Just go way out to go and source something cool. Nice. And so what would you say was like, if you had, um, you know, three 
tips for people mm-hmm. who are build because it sounds to me as well it wasn't just it wasn't just a large community and you know a hundred thousand plus is a large community right. it sounds to me like these were actually pretty targeted pretty motivated uh people it wasn't just at this point just people that enjoyed looking at pictures of guitars it sounded like people right. were actually practitioners of it what say say you had three pieces of advice for building a community like that or strategies for building a community like that what would those be um, I think it's really important to find people who have the right mindset. It's kind of interesting because I've always found it's a lot like creating a company culture. You need to make sure everyone participating in that group, that culture, they all have the values that you want them to have. And in this case, it was they like to buy hand guitars, which just happened to work out. Um, there's a lot of people like us. Uh, I, I think that helps a lot just in terms of making sure the culture is the way you want it to be. Um, I think if you intend on monetizing the community, that should be done upfront rather than later. We did it later, which which worked in our case, um, but I think we would have had better results and less of a kind of sticky or iffy transition period if we had done it initially. Um, but again, that we never really intended it for be to be a business right off the kind of front side. Um, and then the third part, I think, is just actively engaging with your community. And if you're not passionate about what the community is, just because you know sometimes you end up working for a company where you're running the marketing, you're running the community, is to find someone that really is and can really click with the community. Um, you want to focus on not really selling so much as helping them fulfill their needs and wants. If, if you see they really want one specific thing, it makes sense to give it to them, right? Absolutely. And so um, did, you, did you get a backlash then when you started monetizing within the community? Oh, yeah. We had some, a lot of people complained, but we had far, by far the majority were super supportive of what we were doing. They understood, our, they understood why we were doing it. Um, we told them outright, like, look, some of the, at the time we were working with various guitar dealers or brands and we'd take a cut of what had sold, um, just as basically a sales commission, kind of like your classic affiliate deal. Um, but we told them, Hey, look, these retailers are moving too slowly. They're not getting you the options that you should be able to get because they don't have as much pull as someone like us would have. Um, they're, they're not inspecting product properly and really putting the time and intention into it like we would. Um, et cetera. So most of the community got exactly what it was and they've kind of gone through a lot of those same pain points. So it made a lot of sense for them, just like it did for us. Nice. And you said that you built the community in part from, um, from other forums that are out there. Um, yeah. How did, how did, what forums were they and what, uh, how did that kind of happen? How did you bring them in? Um, just, just various, literally guitar forums for like the top four or five, um, just making a thread saying, Hey, check us out. We're guitar porn. It was definitely, it was just kind of by accident. So at that time, Facebook was, wasn't really too big. Um, groups were definitely not a thing when we started initially. It was very much so page focused. Then we migrated into a group where we could kind of do more two-way communication. There were no admin tools or anything like that. I remember if you, if you made someone else an admin or a moderator and you just wanted them to kind of help out with controlling the group, they'd have as much power as you. So they could actually <laughs> ban you from your own group. I, we never had that happen, but it was a real concern. Like, you know, someone overnight could just decide to ban you from your own group, take over it and uh, ransom it off or something like that. But yeah, no. So you're literally just, um, you were just saying, hey, you know, we've got this, this great space um, called Guitar Porn. Come and check it yeah. out. Cool. Yeah, it wasn't anything really too sophisticated at the start. So nice. And now um, groups have obviously come a long way. Like you said, we mm-hmm. we we have gained admin tools. You can do all of those yeah. things on Facebook right now. But also, yeah, there's many people that are complaining that the reach is now down. Would you, oh, yeah. if you did it over again, would you still use um, Facebook as your community, or would you use some other um, platform as your community? 
Yeah, I guess it's really tricky. Um, I've spent a lot of time around around forums just ever since I was little. I think I've been using internet forums since I was nine or ten years old um, to look Brad. up like, okay. like video game cheats and stuff, just dumb <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I, I, it's kind of tricky because, like, like you said, groups have very bad reach now. It's kind of interesting with the company we just acquired Solarwood Flowers. They do a lot with Facebook groups. Um, we're, we're obviously pushing away from that. I think we've all experienced the pain of being very reliant on Facebook. Then they killed organic reach and kind of overnight a lot of guys were there. They, they went from having really effective ad campaigns where a big chunk um, of kind of sales attribution could be led back to the organic side. Um, and then that just went missing and kind of crushed their business. That happened to us as well. We experienced it. Um, I think pushing to your own forum would make the most sense long term because it also builds that SEO value with Google. Um, but it's difficult. It's really hard to get people to register on internet forums right now. Your only real option is um, is pushing to Facebook groups because I feel like people have become really accustomed to Facebook groups and pushing to that makes sense because they already have a login. Um, but and it's tough to answer. I think if you have more money, it's easier to push people into a forum, but then you need cash to build out a forum. You need cash to just fix a billion things that go wrong with a forum. Um, it becomes its own headache. So I don't know. There's plus and pluses and minuses to both. I'm not really sure how I would do it if I went out and did it again. Um, I think the one thing I would do is ensure that I'm collecting everyone's email address, keeping them on an email list or another platform that you have total control over. For sure. And I, I totally agree. And I think actually at this point, we are in this sort of transition period whereby um, there isn't really a great alternative to Facebook groups, but, but people oh, can also see the, the sort of the path that's coming, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. you know, with Facebook groups. And so it's, that's interesting that, um, you know, yeah. we're, we're quite aligned on that. Um, but yeah. Since, um, you see a lot of, yeah, like a lot of the younger demos don't use Facebook at all. And Instagram doesn't offer anything for groups that's, that's substantial, like a forum would. Um, and neither does Snapchat. So you kind of wonder where, where's that demo going to go? How are they going to converse online in a kind of a more, more of a group setting rather than a two-way setting? So I don't, it'll be cool to see what happens. Yeah, I don't know if it's Discord, Telegram, um, Slack. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure, but I think, yeah, in terms of places where the majority of people already have an account and are active on a daily basis, which is the problem with a forum, it's creating a new habit for them to to, oh, you know, yeah. to, to, to participate. Um, yeah, it doesn't really um, exist right now. But, but yeah, like you said, as long as you've got their email addresses and presumably phone numbers, then you can, yeah. you can at least um, build stuff um, and control your audience. So, I mean, that, that, was, a, that was a cool tangent. So, um, so you, um, you, the natural transition from, um, from the, the, the guitar brokerage, shall we say, um, mm -hmm. was to develop um, Horizon devices. So Horizon devices builds devices for... Yeah, I guess so. The interesting thing with that is there was a guy in a band called Periphery, the Grammy nominated, really cool guy. This is before they're Grammy nominated slightly, but uh, still a really popular band at the time who I just happened to have traded guitars with a few times. His name's Misha. Um, he's a good friend of mine now. He, um, he had hit me up and he's like, hey, I know you're really into the business side of things. Why don't we start a guitar? Why don't we start a guitar pedal company? I go, guitar pedals? Like, I don't know, maybe. I'll have to think about it. So I talked to my business partner for Wired Guitarist at the time, who was, who was Brian Gilmanov, um, still working with One Horizon Devices. And he said, yeah, let, let's do it. So we thought, all right, cool. We'll throw like, I don't know, 10, 20 grand at it, something like next to nothing. Um, so we put next to no money into that company. We, we worked, we created our own community for Horizon Devices. We worked with the community to kind of shape a, um, to shape what they wanted in the pedal. And all the features were based off of community polling, 
um, just really pulling from that. A lot of the stuff is kind of more commonplace now, but it wasn't, it was like fairly cutting edge in, I think December 2016 when we launched or December 2017. I can't remember. I want to say December 2017. But uh, yeah, so a lot of it was fairly cutting edge when we launched. Um, and then we just hit massive pre-order sales right off the bat. A lot of that has to do with Misha um, and his reputation as a really solid guitarist. Um, it always helps having good influencers on board, as I'm sure you know, and you've seen just drive CPA way down. Uh, and then just kind of implementing a lot of the classic digital marketing techniques you see. And so you you did um, a ton of pre-orders um, yeah. with this. Uh, in in fact, I think I saw was it was it six figures in pre-orders? Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was six figures in pre-orders, but seven figures on a runway on a run rate basis. So per month, it was over a hundred grand. Nice. And so, did you use any kind of crowdfunding platforms for that, or did you um, do it in your own in your own space? Uh, we just used our own website. Um, in hindsight, we maybe should have used Kickstarter or something similar, um, but it was fine. We built our site using WooCommerce, fairly ghetto at the time. And then uh, you introduced me to Shopify a little bit after that, and I never went back after. But at the time, it was WooCommerce, so pretty funny. Nice. Um, it's, it's interesting to me. We've definitely had, um, you know, definitely spoken with a lot of experts lately on sort of crowdfunding mm-hmm. and so on. And um, it's a similar sort of story. The guys that have followed that for the last 10 years, so Kickstarter for the last 10 years, it's definitely a similar story to how we talk about Facebook, you know, and talking about the glory days and, and so on. So I wouldn't <laughs> kick yourself too much. I think, um, you know, I think we, we all see the Kickstarter success stories and just assume, hey, I'll just put it on Kickstarter and boom. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but um, okay. So you, so, um, you, I mean, this is phenomenal. So you've got you've got a huge um, community of um, guitarists now across these two companies. You're doing um, sales of guitar pedals, which are pre- uh, presumably a fairly high end uh, mm-hmm. price point. Um, and at some point, you um, go towards Carter Ventures. How did yeah. that happen? So I guess I always really liked the investing side. Um, I always read investing books when I was younger, especially anything Buffett related, like like this bad boy over here, which just happens to be here, I swear, oh. not, not purposeful placement, uh, <laughs> unlike that over there. <laughs> He's, uh, for those of you listening to audio, Meta's gestured to my book, which is on a, uh, on a shelf, very much in video shot right now, which, is, <laughs> which I assume is always there. I assume it's there for convenience. Oh, of course. Definitely not for the cool. yeah. Um, but yeah, so I guess I, I just always really kind of love the idea of the investing side. I, I can handle the micro fine. I can do it, but I don't love it as much as the investing side kind of dealing with people. Um, I think I, I invest in one of the companies you were doing where we both kind of, we fucked up, we lost our money, whatever. It was kind of fun, but I really liked that. It gave me a cool kick. Um, and then I started getting into it more and more. Um, initially, my plan was just to do angel investments in the kind of guitar space and then um, mentor products, et cetera, anything else I knew really well. Um, since I'd read that just investing in something you're familiar with in an industry that you're familiar with tends to lead to better results for investors um, as measured by internal rate of return. But um, that was difficult to produce deal flow for, which is kind of how many investments come to you. So I, uh, I started posting on Reddit trying to generate deal flow. And then I met my business partner, Alex Ledoux on there. And um, he's, a, he's a really smart guy. He started a company called EcoFlower at 23 that he scaled to 10 million plus in revenue and 100 plus employees in two years. He sold that to a private equity firm. Then he went on to CEO Ice.com, um, which is now IceTrends.com. But that was the largest and oldest online jeweler. Um, it's all at like 25. It's crazy. And then um, now we've just been kind of investing together. Yeah. That's nice. The lead up. 
that is the lead up. There's uh, one one heck of a lead up as well. And so um, I'm just uh, processing uh, that for a second. And so um, you so you were already investing in companies you find, but you didn't necessarily have the deal flow. What kind of companies were at that time were you looking to invest in? Yeah, like I was saying, I really wanted companies that were guitar centric or um, or had something to do with men's hair products. Any of those spaces really well. About uh, men's words, you say? Uh, men's hair products. Men's hair products. Okay, so yeah, uh, because of my experience with Blumond. Oh, uh, nice. Because you're because you're investing into what you know. Great, and and yeah. so and so you literally um, met Alex, your business partner. You literally met him on the internet. Yeah, we met through Reddit. Actually, it's kind of funny. I've met all of my business partners through Reddit. I mean, not Reddit, <laughs> sorry, the internet in general, including you. Like, we'd done business together before we met in person. I only met you in person, like, last year. Yeah. It was, yeah, a, it was a hell of a trip. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think no, it was last year. But it's just funny. I've never really had business partners other than Ben at Blumau that I've known in person before we started working together. <laughs> um, and Alex and I invested, I think, close to, like, a quarter million before we... Um, before we met in person, which is really weird. Ah, millennials. <laughs> I mean, that's what it is, right? Um, yeah. You know, um, there's, there's no, there's no harm in that. And um, but so, what does um, so what is your role within um, Carter, and what uh, and what does Carter do? Yeah, absolutely. So, I guess at a high level, um, our our core core philosophy is really applying digital marketing and everything digital marketing can do for a business. To, um, to companies in the direct-to-consumer space um, or, or traditionally e-commerce kind of retail setting. Um, and that's led to us building our own internal team. So we do a lot of investments in early-stage startups that are doing between, you know, that one to 10 million range in revenue. Um, we do a lot of buyouts as well. Well, not a lot, but we do buyouts. Um, and lately our focus has really shifted to distressed, um, to distressed buyouts just because you get such a good deal uh, it's exciting to us too, long term, because we know right now these deals we're doing, while they've been really profitable for us, um, the real exciting part is going to happen during the recession, right? If you get good at picking up companies that are distressed now and there's a recession, it's going to be Black Friday for us. So <laughs> we're uh, we're fairly thrilled for that. We're just kind of sitting on the sidelines with a lot of cash ready to go. Um, at the same time, we're still working our ass off. So we just acquired a company called Solowood Flowers in Utah. I've been there on and off since February or March. Um, and I'm usually in Vancouver, so it's it's just kind of funny. It's middle of nowhere, Utah, not really where I expected to be. And then Alex and I are both kind of handling the micro and day to day of running the business. Nice, I like that. Black Friday is like uh, <laughs> is like Christmas, or a recession would be like Black Friday. Um, I like that. So, um, so you're looking for. Um, so, so you're looking for companies, any companies that are online, so they do digital marketing, but you're looking for the companies that aren't necessarily doing digital marketing very well. Uh, what what kind of, um, how many deals do you typically aim to do per year? And um, when you say distressed, um, what, what are you really looking for? Right. I guess um, what we're looking for too when we invest is that the product's really solid, there's great margin, and the founder really knows their audience well if it's a minority investment. Um, and a lot of these time, a lot of times these, these small companies can't really afford to go out and hire the best talent, right? Um, if one of these small companies wanted to hire someone like you, for example, to help them with paid social, they can't afford it. And, and like the math would just never make sense. They, they just would not be able to afford it. It wouldn't happen. Um, so what we did with our centralized team is build out all that talent in-house, have it ready to go. Um, we just onboarded a CMO that you recommended actually, who's terrific at paid. Um, and, 
And now they have access to that talent at a fraction of the price. And these people are fully invested in the success of these companies because we give them a cut of the equity. Um, so it's awesome for the portfolio companies that way. Fantastic. Um, okay. So what, uh, oh yeah. So how many deals are you, um, typically yeah, doing per day? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I guess it, it's really tricky. We're a small team. Um, and it really depends on the type of deals that come across our desk. Some minority investments, we could do really as many as we wanted of those per year. Um, for us, we're fairly opportunistic. So if we see a good deal, we'll just jump on it. Um, I think last year we did around 10 deals, um, which is a fair bet for a comp- for our first year of venture capital, kind of private equity. We're, we're in a weird middle zone, but um, for a firm like ours, especially, um, but yeah, really just minority side, if someone's looking for growth equity, we're always happy to speak. On the buyout side, we have our hands tied a little bit right now, but it should get better as we onboard a new CMO and a new COO um, for SoloWood specifically. So we're kind of out of the weeds, so to speak. Nice. And so for for um, for those people in the audience that don't necessarily know um, what a, um, like a, uh, would, would you refer to yourself as a venture capital firm? Uh, it's kind of weird because we do. We're we're really in a no man's zone where we, no man's um, land where we do we'll do minority equity. So that's taking a smaller stake than majority than control in a uh, in an early stage company that that would so that's kind of venture capital that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but these companies are typically already doing more than a million in revenue. Um, and then on the private equity side, that's where you see buyouts happening. And we're moving more and more towards the buyout side just because that's where we see the greatest profitability. But uh, again, like if we see someone smart and like, hey, I need money, my company's already doing more than a million, it's fairly risk-free for us, we'll just throw money at it, um, provided it makes sense. I mean, there's a little bit more than just throw money at it, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I know what you're saying. And so uh, yeah. a company like yours, and so really what I'm getting into actually is because there'll be a lot of people uh, listening and watching this uh, this episode who actually um, could well um, either fit your criteria or actually know someone that fits your criteria. So actually yeah. n- never, never to be someone to miss an opportunity. I don't want to get into that. And so in terms of um, how does a, how does a firm like yours um, get the money to, to, to buy up um, pieces of um, or, or, or the entire company um, in these cases? So you did 10 deals last year. Is that just because you've just happened to have $100 million um, in your back <laughs> pocket? Or uh, how does that um, work? So primarily, we work off of what's called an independent sponsor model when we're working on the private equity side. Um, so what that involves typically is a lot, most of the cap, actually all the capital is just Alex and I's own personal capital um, that we generated through their selling businesses in the past, um, or just dividend flow, whatever, really. Um, and then we leverage that. So if we're buying a company out, say the company is being purchased for $10 million, we'll go out and we'll get a loan from an um, from a bank. So this you won't work with a traditional bank most of the time for these kinds of deals. You work with what's called a mezzanine fund, which provides junior capital for smaller buyouts. Um, And we'll borrow money from them. So we'd probably borrow roughly $5 million from them for a $10 million purchase. And we put the other $5 million ourselves or a combination of ourselves and investors. Um, We've had the chance to work with a lot of really cool investors. Um, A lot of the time it's previous people we've done business with. Um, so like say my business partners at Horizon, for example, they're invested in solo wood flowers right now. Um, we have the ex former finance minister Mauritius on our, who also invested. We have, um, people at private equity funds who put in their own personal capital. Um, and then for larger deals, we tend to work with more institutional type investors to provide the equity. But the really cool thing about private equity overall is that you can use that leverage. So you can buy a $10 million company, but you only need $5 million in cash to do it or even 4 million. Nice. And what sort of interest rate do you get when you get loans like that? 
Yeah, it really depends on the lender you're working with, especially if they want um, a lot of times the Mez guys, especially they love an equity kicker or an equity sweetener, which is just a little bit of equity thrown in with the debt um, to, to kind of hit the goals they're aiming for. Um, so you'll see anywhere from as low as, you know, and it depends if you're willing to be personally guaranteed or not. If you're willing to sign a personal guarantee, things change pretty dramatically, but we don't use personally guaranteed debt. We use what's called non-recourse lenders. So it's not tied to you personally, just the company's collateral. Um, so you see anywhere from like, I'm going to say if the deal size is, say, I don't know, let's go off that 10 million, you'll see debt from as low as kind of low teens all the way up to 18%. Um, we wouldn't touch anything that was 18%, <laughs> but uh, typically low teens is probably feasible. Um, and it, it really depends on the lender. Like if they want more equity, you'll see that go even lower. So. And so you're backing yourself to be able to generate, to not only cover that interest um, component on the loan, but, um, you know, generate significantly more points so that you're able to um, not only cover the interest, but actually make money leveraging that loan. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times these lenders, um, they're used to working with, with businesses that size and they understand what it's going to be like as you ramp things up. So they'll give you, they'll give you a full, sometimes they'll give you six months or a year of interest only payments. Um, so it's not too much pressure on the company to perform right off the bat. Um, a lot of them are just, they're, they're friendly, good guys that want to see the business succeed and make some money along the way, which is totally fair. Um, so they're much more understanding and better to work with than a typical bank lender might be. Um, I think a lot of the people, a lot of times when I tell people, yeah, you know, we go out and we grab like $5 million in leverage. They look at me like I'm nuts, like we're working with some sort of bank that would, that would just take the company from us if something went wrong. But a lot of the times these lenders, um, they'll impose covenants. So, you know, you, you have to stay, you have to keep certain financial ratios within a range. But if you're not hitting those, you can talk to them and they'll be very flexible. Um, thankfully, we haven't really had that happen yet, but um, they, they get it. Like they've, they've seen it happen and they know if, if you're not there to run it, the company will fail. Um, and it's not really a good situation for anyone. So it's better. It's in their interest to be flexible. So. Nice. And what sort of um, life, life scale, um, uh, life cycle, that's the word I'm looking for, um, mm -hmm. do you see in terms of um, how long um, you're looking to, to perhaps hold on to a company um, before um, exiting that company at presumably a much, much higher um, uh, valuation than what you bought it for? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it really depends on what someone's offering us. If they're offering us what we feel is a very high valuation, we're always happy to sell. Um, we'll never say no. But if the company is kind of doing well, it's growing, and no one's made a ridiculous offer, we'll just hold on to the company um, just really forever. Our problem right now, actually the problem all firms really face in a, in a good economy, is that there's not enough good deals at a good price. Um, and the biggest indicator of success in private equity and venture capital really is what you pay for the deal going in. Um, so in our experience, if we can't find a good deal at a good price, we just won't buy, we'll hold our cash. And it's a recurring theme you see with a lot of really great investors over time. Um, Warren Buffett is that way. Howard Marks is that way. And Howard Marks runs like literally one of the all-time most successful funds ever. Um, you, you'll just see it kind of recurring across anyone who's really a value-driven investor. Um, and really, if you talk to any private equity guys right now, they'll tell you the same thing. We don't charge investors fees or anything like that. So, um, I mean, we have, I'd call them pseudo fees, like they're really fees compared to what you'd see in traditional private equity setup. Um, so traditionally with private equity, the reason these companies are being bought right now at ridiculous multiples when they do get purchased is because private equity firms are paid a fee based on the amount of capital they deploy. We are not, so we're not, we're not just going to go out and do deals irresponsibly. Um, because we know it would bite us in the ass. So. 
Right. So in terms of deal flow, you said like if um, if you don't um, get any uh, you know deals that you like the look of across your plate, then you're obviously not making any deals. Where are your deal flows coming right now? How do you um, rather how do you scale the deal flow right now? Where you know how are you stimulating more deals? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, previously, we do a lot of cold email and reach out to companies to purchase them. That was working really, really well, um, which is kind of we ended up on, with more on our plate than we really bargained for. So we're fairly busy. We've paused a lot of the deal flow aside, but we still have deals come in to us through recommendations from other firms that um, just know us. Like if they run across an e-commerce company or, or a DNVB, they'll say, hey, speak to those clowns at Carter Ventures. Um, hopefully in a little more nice way. But um, we, so we have deal flow coming in that way. Um, podcasts like this are really helpful. We were just on e-commerce fuel. We had, um, I think, probably 10 or 12 people just reach out via email right after that um, with potential deals. And some of them are really exciting. Um, yeah, just, just really just kind of the PR part and then networking. A lot of it's in-person networking, which is surprising, especially being a digital guy. Um, you can't just run paid ads to push to your site. And what's interesting is you'll attract the wrong kind of person that way. So mm-hmm. a lot of it is talking to founders, kind of getting out there, speaking to them, showing them, hey, here's how I can help grow your business. And if they believe in you and believe in your team, um, it's, it, you can make a deal happen. But if, if they don't, it's a little bit more tricky. So. And so when you um, when you're obviously you're seeing a lot of um, you're seeing a lot of companies, you're seeing a lot of pitch decks, you're speaking right. to a lot of people. What um, what are some of the uh, biggest failings, if you like, that you're seeing um, what, like problems with DMBBs and e-commerce businesses? Mm-hmm. What are you seeing most commonly at the moment that people people aren't doing such a good job on? Um, I think just across the board with companies in the size range we're talking about, just between that one to 10 million range, we see a lot of founders that are luckier than smart, <laughs> fortunately. Um, we only invest in founders that are the other way around, so smarter than luckier. Um, but we see people who have grown a business, think they did a tremendous job, but it's really just product-driven where they have a ridiculously nice product they've been selling, um, and they don't quite understand that. And they're kind of unwilling to hire people that are better than them kind of and do that. Um, which is a, which is a failing you see with a lot of entrepreneurs typically not just the DNVB or e-commerce based. Um, people are really weak on the accounting side and the uh, financial modeling side. So a lot of times these companies end up distressed because they were doing certain unsustainable things in their business, um, or they'll just still, they'll make the mistake of going all in on one platform. Um, we got into a deal uh, late last year where the company was selling exclusively through a deal-based platform. That platform basically said, hey, you know, let's introduce more vendors, completely screwed them over. Then the company suddenly had nowhere to sell and they were kind of just dying really fast. And luckily we were able to pivot them on a more sustainable kind of paid approach. Um, but but yeah, just kind of really just those, those two, three things. Wow. And so... That's super interesting, actually. Yeah, there is. Um, uh, it's interesting. He said said that um, owners who have been um, lucky more than smart, and yeah. um, I, I, I there's that's actually brought a bit of clarity in terms of um, a lot of the companies that, that I've seen over the over the years. So, how do you identify <laughs> a smart, um, a, a like a, a smart business owner that's had success through their brains over mm-hmm. um, a lucky one? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think initially it was really hard for us to tell, but once we started working with more and more people, speaking to more and more people, you know, now we speak to hundreds of entrepreneurs every year and we look at hundreds of businesses. Um, it's become pretty obvious who's in that top quartile and who is not. Um, you know, just, just basic things about running a business. So people who are not in that top quartile will not get right. People who are brilliant, um, 
you, you can tell right away. We have one guy that we invested in. You know, he was plugged into weather.com's API and automatically adjusted AdWords bids. And the company was only doing four or five million dollars a year. He had ridiculous reporting set up for each part of the business. He ran it. He literally ran that company like it was a hundred million dollar a year company, but it was doing like four million a year. That's the kind of guy you really want to put your capital into. And I, he's literally one of the smartest people I've had a chance to work with. Um, his name's Clay. He's just a brilliant guy. Um, really glad we got to invest in that company, and it's done really well, which is unsurprising. But yeah, I, I'd say it kind of comes from experience, just talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, really kind of getting out there. Um, yeah, I think that was the most helpful thing. Nice. And so, so it's a case of um, you you give you give the business owners the benefit of the doubt, and then from pulling at the thread a little bit more, you begin to um, your your gut tells you and reveals whether they're smart or lucky. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. And so in terms of um, businesses, so before we get into the quick fire question round, which we're going to um, be jumping into shortly, in terms of um, businesses that you th- um, like the characteristics of, bis- of businesses that you see like here in 2019 that you're seeing mm-hmm. um, doing really well, what what sort of characteristics, say say three to five characteristics of a, of a top DMV um, DMV. I like to say DNV brand, which is what the B is, or sometimes yeah. Anyway, yeah. It, it, what um, are those characteristics that you're you're seeing, um, or or you would like to see more of that you think really make businesses great? Yeah, absolutely. I think having a really good team is the most important thing. Um, you you'll hear that a lot from all investors. Really, a really good team can make the world's worst product work. Um, and I, I've seen it happen with some companies we invested in where the team's just ridiculously good and makes it work. You know, we have a retailer we're invested in where I, she's literally the lady that, that runs the company that founded it. She's, um, she's generating four or five times profit off of um, the inventory she has that the competitor does. So she's just ridiculously good at merchandising. Um, so it's a really strong team. Sorry, I was off on tangents, but a really strong team, um, a really strong product helps tremendously, obviously, um, just by nature of word of mouth. You can't really sustain a company with a bad, bad product for very long. It gets difficult. You know, the bad reviews will pile up, et cetera. You won't have any stickiness to the customer. And the third is just margin. And if they don't have the margin initially, just really sticky customers that come back and keep buying and buying and buying and buying. So making that margin over, over the long term. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I like that. I like that. Metab, you've been you've been absolutely solid. Are you ready for some uh, quick fire questions? Absolutely. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And so um, we we love this section of the of the podcast because we give um, either none or very little um, heads up as to the questions, so it comes out all spontaneous. Um, but I reckon we're going to have some fun here. So I'm going to ask them quickly. You can answer as long as long as you like. Um, are there any unusual things you eat? Or drink regularly, and why? Um, I just got into Doritos sandwiches, so throwing in Doritos, <laughs> some cheese, and some bread. Nice. True classic. That's just what was sitting around at the office. I throw in some hot sauce, too. Alex and I are always on the phone, and we're just kind of stuck working all the time. So we'll just make random things that are in the fridge, throw them in two pieces of bread, and you're good. <laughs> okay, and so that's that's something that you're eating regularly. Is there any anything... Um, I mean, you're a strong guy. Is there anything that you eat to help with the strength? <laughs> Uh, I those Dorito sandwiches they really pile the calories up. No, um, I think I, I eat a lot of chicken too. Unfortunately, I am so sick of eating chicken breast, but literally chicken breast like five or six times a week. Um, and then of course protein shakes. So nice. And th- those end up getting fairly warm over the day and disgusting. So, yeah. 
how do you get yourself into a state of flow? Um, oh, God. I think loud music helps a lot. Um, I've been stuck at the physical office. So I, I've worked from home for most of the time for a long time, but I just music really helps, I think. Is that like directly into your ears with headphones or just does yeah, everybody else now. get to listen? I, I hate using headphones because I always find the audio quality lacks compared to a nice, like, you know, real studio monitors, which I'm sure you, you have a past in music too, so you know what it's mm-hmm. like. Uh, and then being stuck with headphones is just brutal, which is what I'm used to now because I'm stuck in an office uh, for the day-to-day, but yeah. So actually on that note, I got really excited and then really disappointed um, <laughs> with a company called um, uh, Neura. So these are Neura headphones, which uh-huh. um, they have like an inside bit here. Um, oh, so, so it like kind of goes into your ear and then mm-hmm. it cups your ear as well. And supposedly they each ear's got a fingerprint. And so they've got a microphone mm-hmm. um, in that inner bit. And so they they can tell what your sort of ear fingerprint is. And they supposedly, with an app, adjust the sound according to um, how you prefer to listen. And I was like yeah. so excited about this. And then you can get it on a subscription model where they just deactivate the headphones if you don't pay a subscription. But obviously it's a lot lower and a lot smaller outlay. I was like, wow, this is really good. This is really cool. Unfortunately, I was really underwhelmed um, oh, at the end of it by the product. Yeah. And so I've just gone back to these um, Sennheiser uh, Momentums, which are absolutely fantastic and look a little bit retro with the leather and the um, thing but I'd say that's the closest thing I've always loved like you said in my music background DJing and so mm-hmm. on. I've always used Sennheiser um, and these are these are really really solid in terms of audio quality you're coming through like an absolute angel right now into my ears <laughs> beautiful <laughs> yeah so you might want to try those out um, and uh, you might not want to ditch the uh, the sort of um, IT support headset that you're, <laughs> you're wearing it's, uh, I like this one because it's I made Alex buy a pair too he didn't believe me but they they have 300 feet of Bluetooth range they can get up go cook and stuff and earlier when I was grabbing your book I literally ran all the way downstairs and all the way back up um, but they're really lightweight too so if you're on the phone for like 10 hours a day it's fine nice um, I, I'm really defensive of my headset so. Yeah, no, they look beautiful. They look beautiful. So the, uh, I would say these ones, the Bluetooth range is good, but in terms of uh, microphone, I don't use that. I use a, a microphone, which is just out of shot here. Um, oh, so wow. Whereas you've got me beat on the microphone. So, um, What habit or opinion do you have that people tend to disagree with? <laughs> uh, you can list as many as you want, if you like. And a lot. I, I'd <laughs> say I feel like a lot of people just waste their time chasing opportunities where there's not really a good internal rate of return. Or they chase money more than learning opportunity is probably the biggest one. Um, I think that's the biggest mistake a lot of people really make is pursuing something where there's not much learning opportunity just for the money. And it, usually it's not even that much money. Like it's really not thought through. So I, I got shit for that quite a bit. And so how do you, um, how do you combat that, um, the shiny object syndrome? To, to, like, how do you calculate potential upside or, or, or whatever for yourself? Um, really just kind of based off of past performance as well as who I'm working with. If they have, you know, a solid track record, then it's pretty safe to assume good things will happen. And that's how it really worked out with Alex. I just kind of looked at his track record. I'm like, all right, well, that's what you call a winning racehorse. I will bet on it. So uh, just jumped in with him and things have been good. And the learning opportunity in this case? Oh, yeah, it was absolutely was massive. So, you know, he was the former CEO of ice.com. I learned so many things just working with him, for example. I never really worked um, around a retailer with a ton of SKUs. So I never really realized how much of an impact merchandising can have and your product sort order in a collection. Like that, that kind of thing, it just sounds like a really dumb, small thing. But it can dramatically change your conversion rate if you're dealing with a company with 4,000 products, right? 
Um, and I, I'd always been like a two to four SKU guy. And then I come into some of these companies, it's like 5,000 SKUs. Um, so he ran into unique problems and he solved a lot of those before. It's like the product sort thing. Um, he's much better than me just at really everything. But I learned a lot about the financial modeling and operating model side from him. Um, just tremendous room to learn. It's just great. And you suspected you would have those kind of learnings before going into the deal. And that's made it enticing for you or part, part of the yeah. decision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and actually, on what you say about the the product sorting things, um, I've seen it time and time again that often by removing SKUs, um, yeah. you can increase your conversion rate just because customers find the things that they they want to see um, easier and aren't distracted by poor poor performing products. Um, yeah, SKUs, absolutely. So I've seen that time and time again. Um, if you ran a school but could only teach one non traditional lesson, what would that be? Um, persistence. Tell me more. Uh, just just being persistent, just kind of keep keep going at something. Something about that. So do you Probably. think do you think that um, people nowadays are finishing or, or quitting before just before they they hit something or like what's the reason? Yeah, I feel like a lot of people don't really put true effort into something or kind of keep going for long enough to really get the fruits out of it. Like they'll just try something once. And then I'm like, oh, it didn't work. Versus like, oh, hey, it didn't work, but it was one iteration. Let's keep going. Let's keep trying. It's really difficult because you don't really know when you'll have that successful moment, but you only really need one and then you're good. They don't realize it's not, it's a, uh, it's a binary game, right? You only need one success out of like a thousand for something to work. Yes. You certainly see time and time, time again, um, entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs talk about the times they failed um, being, being mm-hmm. sort of more important in learning. And so in terms of um, uh, a persistent persistence exercise does anything spring to mind as to how you might begin to ingrain persistence in someone how they might challenge themselves to be become more persistent um i guess just keeping just um getting into a hobby that requires it so whether that's you know picking up an instrument and practicing every day i think that's something everyone can do or um, going to the gym working out just things like that really help nice so things where you don't see any kind of quick wins but you you see it gradual long term if you and so do you think tracking is important in those instances uh i'm really bad i don't track anything at all i don't even have goals written down uh alex is also like me we both don't use goals at all which is really unusual um we run all of our companies off of an okr system which is objective key results which is kind of something google uh came up with that we just ripped off of (laughs) a lot of smaller companies like to rip off of it's a great management system uh but yeah, I'm, I'm not really good that way in terms of tracking, but I do think it's good for people to do if they find it helps them. So, so even in the gym, um, you don't, you're, you're not tracking. No, I'm just, I'm pretty checked out when I'm in the gym, just because I, you know, both Alex and I have been working between eighty to one hundred hours a week since we we're young. So, if we're in the gym, we're just fairly checked out, just totally different mode. And nice. it's, uh, I find it enjoyable. It's just kind of nice. You don't have to think about anything else. You can really check out. So. Just, just kind of using it as your your sort of meditation. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Um, what book had the biggest impact on your life? Um, well, it's right back there. It's called The One Percent Secret by Martin Cook. So, um, what was the second most influential book? Obviously, after my own. Yeah. Um, it, it's difficult to really pin it down on one. I've I've really gotten a lot of value out of this. Is kind of weird, but philosophy, books focused on philosophy and investment philosophy. Um, it's weird too, because if you read a lot of investment books, they have more to do with philosophy and understanding yourself more than, Hey, do these three things, you'll be able to make money in the market. 
Um, it's not really tactical. It's more strategic. It's very interesting. But I found this book right here. It's called The University of Berkshire Hathaway. Really good. It's literally, it's, you don't really need to buy the book. It's just a, a compilation of Warren Buffett's shareholder updates as well as kind of key learnings from each update. Um, I thought it was really, really good. If you haven't read all of Berkshire Hathaway's shareholder updates, I'd recommend you do so. Um, if you grab this book, it's nice because it gives a bit of background on everything. Um, I found Howard Mark's blog really good. Um, it's not really a blog, but uh, he has a few books too that are out for free. Ray Dalio is really good. Principles is kind of a classic now. Um, and I love, there's a book on the founder of Blackstone called The King of Capital that I really like. That's the private equity. Nice. Um, but yeah, I'd say those really just those kind of, it's weird. They're like blogs, basically blogs published by Warren Buffett and Howard Marks. Those are really good. And do you have any books um, for more general entrepreneurs um, that you recommend? Uh, I've only ever read the summary. I read it after I kind of applied the principles. I really wish I'd read it earlier, but I'd say the lean startup is pretty good. Nice. And um, Oh, Purple Cow too is amazing. Ah, I Seth. Seth, Seth Godin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um, I kind of maybe I need to give that another read. I, I didn't. I sort of went okay. So yeah, product needs to stand out and be different. Got it. And then it that's like page three. And then I'm like, what? <laughs> so the rest is all the same thing. <laughs> yeah, but um, as I said, maybe I haven't. Sorry, Seth. I, yeah, I just liked it because I felt it was like a few steps ahead of where everyone else was at that time. Mm. Um, it's a fairly old book now, and I feel like a lot of it's pretty obvious, and someone with your level of experience just kind of knows a lot of what's in there. That's another book I just wish, I, wish I'd read earlier. It's just so good. It's got a great cover as well with like the purple cow spots all over. Like, really <laughs> yeah, he really nailed it. A book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what does the first 30 to 60 minutes of your day look like? Um, I hate to say it, usually I'm on my phone for, actually it depends. So right now, for the last six months while I've been in Utah, Alex and I are up by 4 a.m. or so. Um, and then we drive down to the old village factory. Uh, but we're, usually I, I wake up and I just kind of get ready right away, jump in the car with Alex and we're off. Um, I, I was going to the gym before I work, but now I do it after work. So, yeah. Nice. Is there any kind of uh, regular things you do? And like, do you have any kind of morning routine or anything like that? Or have you ever? No, I've never really been a routine guy, as you probably know, based off the phone calls we've had at specifically odd times and <laughs> in the day um i am really weird I, I go to sleep whenever i'm tired i don't really go to sleep at a set time either um yeah so really definitely not a, a ritual or ritual kind of guy or like a habit kind of guy so really do, odd, but... do, how many how many hours of sleep do you think you typically need or or sleep for? <laughs> uh between the uh, during the week right now just because alex and i've been so slammed with our latest acquisition uh, we sleep between three to six hours a night. Usually between three to five, it stays more accurate. The weekends, I just crash. I'm not definitely not like a party kind of guy. I just literally go to sleep. Um, ideally, I'd be getting between like six hours, seven hours a night. That'd be really good. But uh, I can I can deal with five. When we start pushing down towards like the, the three to five hours a night for five days straight, that's where it gets fairly brutal. Um, things have been more relaxed now, so it's not as, as bad. We're about to almost the new CMOs won't be as bad, but I don't know. Doable. Nice. Metab's the for for the to provide a bit of context. Metab's the probably the only friend I have, like where he, um, I can literally contact him almost any day of the of any time of the day or night, and he's just up and responds. And it's it's um, it's super <laughs> weird. I've long since wondered if he's in fact a vampire. Um, it's uh, 
but it's quite impressive. But I like that. So, so you, so you're, you know, you're working ridiculous, um, ridiculously long hours, um, crushing it, and then you crash it the weekend. Do you have a, do you have a girlfriend, wife, children? No, no, no kids or wife, girlfriends. On, on and off depends on the month. Uh, but I think generally just being open with people and kind of telling them up front, like, hey, I'm not really going to be available all the time. It's fairly important. And if they understand that, great. If not, whatever, right? Um, just providing it up front. I don't think people really get too upset that way. Sure. But I'm sure it'd be different if I had a kid. Alex does have a kid and a, uh, and a, and a wife. So he's, he has to be a little, little more um, careful than I do. So I always make sure I get her presence though, so that she's happy with him working. So I'm like, yeah, that's smart. Smart. Yeah. yeah. Keep, keep his <laughs> wife happy and he'll be happy. I like it. Um, any advice for your previous boss or bosses in general? Um, I actually haven't had a boss in a long time. I'd say, uh, just let employees get more aggressive and take on responsibility faster. I was actually working at a, my last job when I was 18, it was selling the, the Irish lotto to people in the UK because the odds were better over the phone from Vancouver, which is probably the scammiest thing you could literally say. It sounds made up. Um, but no, it was, it was legit. It was a really fun job. I ended up outselling my whole cohort put together, which is about 10 people. Um, but I would just show up earlier than everyone else and get the good leads. They didn't realize it. So <laughs> I just shows it's better to work harder. Sometimes you just get lucky. Um, but they just wouldn't give me enough responsibility fast enough. So I got fairly bored there. Um, but I, I don't know if I can really blame them. So. Interesting. I, I actually get that answer a lot uh, in, uh-huh. terms, in terms of giving, giving, um, giving your team more responsibility um, like faster and not micromanaging. Get that a lot, which is there's mm-hmm. definitely a pattern there. Where do you go or what do you do to get inspired? Uh, just really talking to smart people. Like I had a lot of fun when we hung out last year. Um, we went to Botanist, had some fancy food. <sighs> Um, but really Love just that. hanging around smart people kind of re-energizes me. You recently, you recently recommended Michael, our new CMO. Um, I've had a lot of fun. He flew in from Ohio. He was with us last week from Wednesday, uh, Tuesday through Thursday. And uh, it was great just getting to talk to him. I feel really re-energized. I think we're out, we're out fairly late. And I woke up the next day at like 4 or 5 a.m. with like four hours of sleep, ready to go, even though I could have waited another three hours. It turned out Alex was the same way. He was actually texting me about some other work stuff around it i'm like why why are you awake he's like oh, i'm just stoked on michael and i was too so uh, just really getting to meet really smart people is pretty inspiring i think i think um uh, absolutely and, and that's what part of the reason as well that we um at the at the mastermind we we run these uh, these events for meeting mm-hmm. people um just because there's there is a certain um i guess there's in the digital world that we all we all live in it, like it's great and we can make really good connections and yeah. um, you know on video video calls like this one you know it, it it's great but there's something there's something still very very special when you're actually face to face um you know with that with that smart person and you know you're sharing a drink you're sharing experiences sharing food um you know there's there's something quite um i don't know like it's something that's hitting you positively in the soul and I'm not it's a little bit undefined, but it makes you feel very, very good afterwards as an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. It's really cool. getting to like kind of, a, and everyone has their cool little tricks or not, I don't want to call them tricks, but cool little subspecialties than whatever they do. And it's always cool to learn what it is. Like I, there's always one and you can kind of squeeze it out of each person even if they don't want to tell you a person and they'll be really excited to tell you. So I don't know. I like yeah, that. To kind of see what it is with everyone. Exactly. Uh, the sort of the quirks that make them them. Mm-hmm. 
So if I gave you $5,000, how would you double it in 24 hours? I would buy $5,000 with either guitars or watches and flip them. And flip them. I would, I would pre-sell them. What about if I gave you the, because uh, you answered that really, really quickly. What about if I gave you the goal to set up a, um, you, you had a month to set up a $5,000 recurring monthly, um, monthly venture. Um, how would you approach that? What do you mean by recurring? Like it has to continue after? Or so, like yeah, so it's 5000 a month um, from, some, from this venture, which could be anything. Um, I, I'd say probably some sort of, probably a digital product, something educational related. Uh, and really just go off of something I know mildly well and try to um, just research the top keywords would be around that and then go off of search-based traffic. So, yeah. Nice. So, so answering the questions that the, the search engines are... Um, telling me to answer. Telling to like, <laughs> like it. What's the okay, best... Google. Yeah. <laughs> What's the best advice ever given to you? Um, oh, God. I don't know. I don't think I've really been given much advice. <laughs> like in that way, I feel like I've been given a lot of really bad advice from people who um, should not be giving advice. <laughs> I read stuff in books I really liked, um, but I don't think I've ever heard anything like really fantastic from a person, person to person that I felt needed to be written down and like it was great. I, I feel like um, a lot of people, even smart people, give out advice that they shouldn't be giving out without the proper disclaimers like, hey, this is what worked for me. It might not work for you before they say it. And they just say it. Like, so I had someone tell me, hey, don't focus. Don't do so many things at once. Focus on one thing. But it turns out I'm really good at multiple things. And that's just the way my brain works. And like, you might be the opposite or someone else might be totally different. I just feel like it's, I don't know, it's really easy to get bad on solicited advice. I was going to say, what's, um, what's some of the bad advices that you've, given, you've uh -huh. been given? What, what advice do you like to give others then? Um... Don't take anyone else's opinion too seriously, even if they are successful, and just kind of focus on what you're really good at and try to maximize the time you spend doing what you're good at. Um, and really, anything you're not great at, you should just be hiring out for, right? Um, if you can. Like, obviously, a lot of times you need a certain amount of cash flow with your own business to hire someone that's really good at something else. Uh, but as soon as you can afford it, you should really be working at trying to hire that person. And um, are you a believer uh, or do you lean towards uh, virtual physical employees more or less, or does it depend on the role? Uh, I think it really depends on the role. So, like I've done a lot of both. Like right now at SoloLed, you know, we have a, we have 17,000 square feet of factory space and a lot of that's office space too. So that's a lot of physical in person. Um, there's some things I like about both, some things I don't. I think I prefer working from home and doing everything kind of virtually. That's totally doable on the investment side. That's a lot of investment businesses are run nowadays. Um, and that's definitely something I want to go back to. But I, I like kind of mixing it up. I don't mind this too much. It's fun getting to kind of see. It's, it's weird having a full-blown factory behind me when I'm working. You know, we walk out. We can see all the flowers being kind of hand-dyed and made, things being shipped out. You can kind of go back there and help shipping move faster, et cetera. It's kind of cool. So I don't know. There's pluses and minuses to both. Um, I, I just kind of like, I find it more effective and I work better from home though. Okay. Um, what silly thing should people do more of? Uh, definitely pranks. I love playing pranks. I, I, I think, you know, I, I think everyone needs to play more pranks and they need to be more open to be being pranked. Be more open to being pranked. Is that going out to the people you've pranked and they didn't like it? Those, those guys. Exactly. <laughs> I like that. I'm just my brain's going through all the meta pranks of the years. Um, would you <laughs> would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? 
Um, I'm the one horse sized duck. Why? I'd just be really entertaining. <laughs> and least if you, this is if a you life die, or death though, you situation. Die fast. But if you die, you die fast versus like a hundred ducks where they just like eat you alive. And like, so, this would be a one and you're done thing. Like, you know, the horse sized duck. So you're, you're choosing it based on um, expecting to lose the fight. Well, I'm just saying worst comes to worst. Like you're down. I'm hedging for downside, really. Like, I don't think it'd be too bad provided you're careful. Like, you know, you put something in the duck's mouth, you're good. <laughs> I like it. Uh, how would you convince someone to do something good that they didn't want to do? Um, I think really showing them what the upside is and the long-term upside. We've had to do a lot with hiring people, especially when a company is short on cash, but just kind of getting, showing them the long-term vision and how they benefit from it in the long-term versus where they're at now and how that's an exponential curve. Cause it is most of the time, right? Um, like even if it's something like, Hey, go out and spend some of your time, um, just donate some of your time helping a charity out or, or volunteer somewhere. Um, and just showing them how that can be good for them in the long term. Like you might meet a lot of really intelligent people doing that. Um, I know someone that volunteers a lot and she, she met like the CFO of a $400 million company, something ridiculous. Um, just those are the kind of people you might run into. So it's just, I think showing people the long-term benefit of what they're doing. Nice. I like that. And last question, what makes you happiest? Uh, deals going well and everyone winning. I think there's nothing greater than, I'm sure you remember your first sale. It's like the same feeling really. Um, we'll see if it kind of sticks, but really that's, what's really cool when we come in, um, especially with distress companies where you come in, everything's kind of falling apart. Everyone's going to lose their job. Literally we bought this last company. The owner did not have money to make payroll on a Monday and we bought it Friday. So people got to keep their jobs. Um, just stuff like that. I think it's kind of cool. And taking a company from really falling apart into winning again. Nice. I like that. And so in terms of, um, so we, so we said earlier on about, um, you know, often, often from podcasts and things like that, people reach out to you. What is, if, if there's someone listening today that's um, really resonated with um, you and the vision and, and, and what um, Cartridge does and so on, um, how can they, um, how can they reach you? Um, the best is probably hello at cardaventures.com. You can head over to our website or email address is there too. It's just www.cardaventures.com. Um, both myself and my business partner, Alex, we're really just fairly relaxed, um, surprisingly, and we're happy to hop on a call with most people just provided we're not slammed time-wise, but we like, even if you don't know for sure, if you want an investment or not, we're happy just to hop on a call and speak to talented entrepreneurs. It's always fun. You always learn something. So, so hello at Carter Venture. So it's K-A-R-T-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S.com. And do you have any ask or requests of the audience today? Anyone? asks or requests no i'm a simple guy just um like follow and subscribe to all of martin's media platforms <laughs> as soon as you can otherwise your parents will not love you <laughs> I, I found out firsthand my mom found out i'm not subscribed to martin and she was like just go back just go back to salt lake when i visited her so. <laughs> I like that. Metab, you've been at your most wonderful uh, best today. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and to share um, the, the inner workings of your exceptional brain. Thank you. 
Hey, Martin here again with an audio goodie bag of a bonus before you head off. First up, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please subscribe and follow Smarter Destiny across iTunes, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. It really helps spread our message, and you'll get valuable content along the way too. Secondly, if you have an e-commerce business or are thinking of starting one, grab a copy of my new book, 1% Secret, recommended by Kevin Harrington and a host of other elite guys. Even better, it's free. Just help out with the shipping costs. So head to smarterdestiny.com forward slash book to grab your free copy. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode.